Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It is so good to be with you today. Uh, welcome to those of you with me in Auditorium 1, those across the way in Auditorium 2, and those who are watching online in what we call Auditorium 3, which is in your home, your car, in your bedroom, wherever you're at. If you're watching online, we are so glad that you're tuning in with us today. I, I tell you, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, these last, uh, this last month or so with uh, growing numbers of people coming back each week. It is so good to you don't, really, you don't really know what you miss until you've not been together with God's people in worship, and then all of a sudden you come back and you go, oh, yeah, this is what it's all about. And, um, you know, because of uh, the growing number of people coming back, and as we kick off the new year, we're going to be making some changes on Sunday mornings beginning next week. Next week, Auditorium 1 will remain a mask optional venue. Auditorium 2 will be mask required in the 9 o'clock service only. Auditorium 2, mask required for the first hour, and the second hour in Auditorium 2 will now be mask optional. And the reason, again, that we're doing this is to accommodate the growing number of people uh, in Auditorium 1, second hour. And so, uh, we're making those changes. Now, also in the second hour, we are going to be offering a mask required venue upstairs. It'll be a video venue complete, a complete video venue upstairs in room 264. So if, if auditorium two is the only thing that works for you and you want to be in a mask required environment, we will have that upstairs for you. Also next week, we will uh, start back having printed sermon notes uh, note-taking, the note-taking pages available for you, and you can pick those up outside the doors of whatever uh, worship venue you choose. Now, the second thing that we're going to do, according to the latest uh, information from the CDC and from the results of our latest survey, we're going to we're going to launch our kids programming next week. So, kids, welcome back uh, next week, and uh, we are excited about uh, having our children come back and, and creating maybe a little bit no more normalcy in your family life. And our staff and our volunteers are excited uh, for them to return. Our goal is to make your children's uh, experience as comfortable and engaging as possible. We've got for all of our children's workers, we've got these new uh, like uh, shields, visors, so that they can see the teachers' faces and they won't be quite, uh, you know, uh, scary when they don't, they are not able to see faces through masks. So we've got shields for all of our uh, teachers and volunteers. And so we want to keep the environment as safe and, and uh, healthy for your kids as possible. If you want to know a little bit more about that, you can go to fellowshipgreenville.org forward slash kids for more information. Now, there's one final change that we're going to make next week that I think that you all will be excited about, and that is Sunday morning coffee is back. And so coffee will be back, and we will have um, uh, available prepackaged condiments uh, that will be handed out by volunteers. And so if you have not yet joined us uh, back on campus and you're comfortable coming back, we encourage you to do so as we kick off the new year. And this includes all of our senior adults. We've missed you, and we want you back. And if you feel comfortable coming back, then we want you as well. And, and again, if you go to our website, Spread Hope, Magnify Grace, there's more details on this, and I think there's an email uh, coming out if it hasn't already gone out uh, to remind you of everything I just told you. So take your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 13. And by the way, if this is your first time joining with us, whether on campus or online, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. And one of the things that we want you to know about us as a church is that if you attend here on a regular basis, what you're going to find is most Sunday mornings we will be uh, teaching our way through whole books of the Bible. And today we're jumping back into a series that we started last fall in the Gospel of John. We are actually spending a year teaching through the good news according to John and we are discovering or rediscovering uh, who Jesus is and what he came to do and what it looks like to trust and follow him. Now, back in May, we pushed pause 
uh, on, in our study in John in chapter 12, and we took a break for the summer, and we did a series we called Disciple. And we define discipleship as doing life with Jesus in community and on mission. And uh, we represented that with this triangle here. And we especially looked at what the call of discipleship meant to the first 12 men that Jesus called to follow him. Now today we pick back up in John chapter 13, what we normally call the upper room discourse, and John 13 through 17 dovetails beautifully into our discipleship series, and here's why. I used to think of the Gospel of John as kind of the evangelistic track of the New Testament, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke were like the discipleship manuals. That's what I used to think, not so much anymore. Now, of course, I still see a heavy evangelistic emphasis in John, and we're going to see that this morning in this passage that we're, about, that we're about to study. And after all, John sums up his purpose for writing the book in chapter 20, verse 31, when he says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So yes, John definitely has an evangelistic purpose in mind. He wants us to see who Jesus really is, and he wants us to believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God sent from heaven to save us from our sins and to give us eternal life. So true. But chapters 13 through 17 is, is John's discipleship manual because in these chapters, Jesus teaches his disciples how they can continue to follow him after he's gone, after he dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and sends back to his Father in heaven. Chapters 1 through 12 covered about three years in the life and ministry of Jesus. Chapters 13 through 17 cover one evening. One night, the night of Jesus' betrayal and his arrest. So, what Jesus teaches us here takes us within 24 hours of his crucifixion. The setting for these chapters is in an upstairs room of someone's house where uh, Jesus met to enjoy the Passover meal with his disciples, and the focus is on what Jesus said and did at that first communion table. Now let me tie in the Old Testament here just uh, for a minute real quick. When Jesus instituted uh, the Lord's Supper, it occurred on this very night. Uh, the night when Jesus observed Passover. And Passover was a Jewish holiday, or better, a holy day, in which Jewish people gathered as families, and they remembered the time when God delivered uh, uh, his, his people out of Egyptian slavery. And they remembered how, through a succession of plagues, God forcibly persuaded Pharaoh to let Moses and the children of Israel uh, leave Egypt and return to their own land, the promised land. The last of the plagues was the death of the firstborn sons of the families in Egypt. And the way that the Jews escaped the plague was that they took the blood of a lamb and they painted it over the doorpost of their home. And when the death angel passed over them and saw the blood, he spared the firstborn sons of the Hebrew families. All of that was foreshadowing Jesus because Paul tells us in Corinthians that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain and his blood delivers us from death. John the baptizer understood something of this. When he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So for hundreds of years, the Jews had been celebrating Passover when God literally passed over them and spared them from death and delivered them to new life. And all of that was foreshadowing Jesus, who would shed his blood and lay down his life for us. And as the only begotten Son of God, the firstborn son, he would pay for all of our sins. And John is telling us that it's all coming to a head right here. It's Passover. It's the time when Jesus, our Passover lamb, will die to fulfill all that was promised. And now, interestingly enough, John doesn't give any details of the meal itself, like uh, the Synoptic Gospels. He doesn't talk about the breaking of bread and the passing of the cup. John's focus is on something else, 
something quite amazing when you think about it. So let's jump in by pulling way back. Um, by the way, I'm just going to walk through the story. This is such a great story. I'm just going to read, read, read verses, explain them, and apply them as we go along. A little bit different this morning. So let me start with this question. How many of you, if you could, how many of you would want to know when and how you were going to die? That's kind of a freaky question, isn't it? I'm like, I don't want to know that. I don't want to know at all, especially if it was a brutal, terrible, painful, excruciating death. Well, Jesus didn't have the luxury of that ignorance. He knew, he knew when and how he was going to die. Now, all through the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And just before this in John chapter 12, Verse 23, after some disciples brought some Greeks to see Jesus, he said, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then later on in chapter 12, verse 32, he says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now, John adds his commentary on that statement in the next verse, and he says, that Jesus, what Jesus said was, uh, or John's commentary on what Jesus said is, he said this to indicate, to indicate the kind of death he was to die, lifted up on the cross. That's what he meant. So when we come to John 13, it's the night before Jesus dies, and he knows it. Now I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, but as I so often do, I'm going to make a few edits as I go along that I think that are in keeping with the original Greek a little bit better. Now, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things into his hands, knowing that he had come from God and was going back from God, he rose from supper and then, all right, stop right there. These opening verses tell us what Jesus had on his mind. Jesus had a number of things on his mind. Look at it. Uh, verse 1 we see that Jesus clearly knew that the time of his death and resurrection had come. He knew he was about to be betrayed, arrested, denied, deserted, and crucified. He knew he was about to die for the sins of the world. The second thing is, verse 3, he knew that the Father had given all a power and authority into his hands, which means that Jesus is in charge of everything that is about to happen. He could stop it if he wanted to, but clearly he doesn't. And that fits with what he said back in chapter 10, verse 18, when he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down by my own free will. Verse 3 again, Jesus knew that he had come from God and that he would be returning to God, meaning he was aware, uh, fully aware of his divine origin and his divine destination. So he knew that even though he faced treachery and humiliation and desertion and the cross, he knew that he would return to the Father. And in verse 2, when you look at verse 2 along with verse 11, it's clear that Jesus knew exactly who it was who was about to betray him. Judas is sitting right there along with everyone else acting like everything is just fine, but Jesus knows what Judas has been up to and what Judas is about to do. And then if I were to skip ahead all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 38, we, know, we see that Jesus knew that Peter would deny him on three different occasions. Now Jesus knows all this. These are the things that he had on his mind that evening at the supper table, but to make matters even worse, the table conversation had to be uh, very disturbing. John doesn't tell us what the disciples were talking about that evening, but Luke does. Luke chapter 22 tells us what was on the disciples' minds as, a, as they were sitting at table with Jesus. Luke tells us that they were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom that they thought Jesus was about to set up in a few more days. 
They think he's going to overthrow the Roman government and set up the kingdom of God. And so they're arguing about who's going to be the secretary of state and who's going to be the secretary of the interior and and who's going to be the, they're going to be important leaders in this kingdom. And that's what's on their mind. They're not thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about themselves. So if you were Jesus, knowing all of this and listening to all this, what would you do? I mean, think about that. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do tonight? I mean, if you knew what was going to happen, if you knew who you were, you know, where you came from, where you were going, if you knew had, you had the power to stop all of this, if you knew that all these disciples who are arguing about, you know, the lofty positions uh, in, uh, that they think that they're going to get in the kingdom of heaven, if you know they're all going to run out on you and desert you, if you knew you were going to be betrayed by a friend and denied by another friend, and you knew who these guys were, what would you do? Well, I mean, I tell you what I would do. I would, I would defend myself. I'd go on the offensive. I would attack. I would tell what I know. I would expose the wrongdoers. Uh, I would straighten things out. And if I had the divine authority to back me up, <laughs> Judas would be toast. Um, but what does Jesus do? And, and during supper, Jesus got up. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't know about you, but that's a little just disappointing to me. I mean, wouldn't you like to see him really take control of this situation? I mean, wouldn't you like to see Jesus tell these guys that have all these high and mighty ideas about sitting on thrones that uh, that, that's not going to amount to much once they desert him and run out on him? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to see him in a kind of sneaky, almost old-time Perry Mason kind of way, reveal who his betrayer is? I mean, wouldn't you like to see some passion like when he ran the money changers out of the, out of the temple? I mean, wouldn't you like to, like to see some power, some explosive judgment, thunder and lightning and everything coming down? I mean, Clint Eastwood might let people push him around for a while, but before long there were dead bodies lying everywhere. But, but we don't see that here. You know why? because Jesus wasn't thinking about himself. What we see here is that knowing all of this, Jesus has no concern for himself. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew he had authority, but he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his friends. And what John wants us to see is that what Jesus knows moves him to act in love. What Jesus knows moves him to act out a demonstration of amazing love. Back to verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows that he will be leaving them soon, and the one thing that he wants to leave them with is the certainty of his persistent, passionate, unchanging love for them. You see that? No, so, so picture the scene in your mind. Jesus knows this is his last night on earth. He knows who he is and where he's uh, come from and where he's going. He knows he's going to die. He's eating a last meal with his 12 best friends, all of whom will de- desert him. Peter will deny him. Judas will betray him. And while all this is swirling around in his head, and his friends are all arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, it's just a bit overwhelming, isn't it? But, but what does Jesus do with all of this spinning around? I mean, he looks at those men and he notices every one of them have dirty feet. I mean, he notices something that needed to be done, something, something practical, something necessary, something quite demeaning. Their feet are dirty, so he gets up, takes off his outer robe, takes a towel, wraps it around his waist, and he washes their feet. Now, to catch the full significance of of all this, you need to understand something about foot washing back in the day. Foot washing was a common practice among Jews and Greeks in Jesus' day. In that culture, washing feet was the lowliest duty of the lowest house slave. If you washed feet, you were at the very bottom rung of the social food chain. You were the least of the least. And in that day, 
of course, there were very few paved roads, mostly dirt roads, and people and animals traveled those roads. The roads were dusty, dirty, muddy, and littered with garbage and animal dung. And you're, what you wear sandals, and, and, and so your feet are dusty and dirty and muddy and dung toe jam and all that kind of stuff. And they're calloused and they're cracked and they're hardened. It's just, just awful. Now, I mean, in our culture today, most guys, even with a good shower, their feet still are stinky and nasty. I mean, let's just be honest. That's just, that's just the way it is. And the last thing that any guy wants to do is wash another guy's feet, right? I mean, some of you guys know exactly what your feet smell like. And if you're married, so do your wife and so do your kids. And they know what your dirty socks smell like. And I just think, you know, that's evidence that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But uh, now today, when you go visit in somebody's home, a lot of times uh, the host will ask the guests to take off their shoes when they come in. Well, in that day, you could take your sandals off, but that didn't make any difference because your feet were just awful. So what would happen is when you walked into someone's house, it was standard practice uh, that the person in the lowest position in the home would wash the feet of the guest. It was considered below the dignity of a, even of a Jewish slave to wash feet. So only foreign Gentile slaves were required to wash feet. Now here on this evening in this room, th since this was a borrowed room, there was no host and, and then house slaves to help out. Uh, and that means there was no one who was least on the totem pole to wash the men's feet. Of course, none of the disciples are thinking about washing feet. Because what are they think, thinking about? They're thinking about sitting on thrones, not washing feet. And so they're all lying around the table. They would lie on their left arm like on a, on a long couch. They would eat with the right hand, and their stinky, dirty feet would be hanging off the end of the bench. All right? And their feet are disgusting. And Jesus sees this. And so he gets up. He picks up a towel. He ties it around his waist so he can use both hands. He picks up the bowl. And, and pours water into the bowl, and then God takes the dirty feet of the men that he has created, and he holds them in his hands, and he w scrubs them clean. That is humility beyond imagination. I mean, it's enough that God would come down and be one of us, that's, that's humbling enough. But then for God to come down as the lowliest of the low house slave, as the lowest servant among us, that's just scandalous. A Messiah? Slave? You see, when the scriptures talk about God being holy, what that means is that God is different. God is holy other, completely other. He is completely different from us. And he thinks and acts and governs different from us. In fact, what Jesus did here in the human realm was in keeping with who he was in the heavenly realm. Because you see, before the upper room, before the stable in Bethlehem, before time began, Jesus enjoyed the glory of Godhood. He enjoyed a position of majesty at the right hand of the Father. He was worshiped by angels and all of creation. But Paul insists, along with all of that, Jesus had a servant heart even back then, in eternity past. And, that's what, and that led to the incarnation. And we read about this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul writes, Jesus existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God as something to be held onto. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the beautiful, wonderful, powerful name. I tell you, I tell you, that just blows my mind. Jesus laid aside the prerogatives of Godhood, and he reduced himself to being a servant. That's the picture of the kind of king that he is, that he wants us to see, a servant king, a serving savior. That's the picture of God that Jesus wants to leave with us, and that's the primary picture Jesus paints of himself. 
Jesus chose to show himself to us as a common house slave. Mark 10, 45 says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Luke 22, 37 says, I am among you as one who serves. That's Jesus' self-definition. I am among you as one who serves. The greatest among them, the one who had come from God and is now going back to God, the greatest made himself the least. Why? Because it needed to be done to meet the need of the moment, and Jesus stood among them as one who serves. Now, this is not specifically mentioned in the text, but it is true to what happened in the room. And when we get to the end of this passage, you'll understand why I'm going to spend so much time on something that's not in the text, but it's in the room. But the thing that amazes me about all of this is that Jesus washes Judas's feet. I mean, can you even imagine that? I mean, imagine you had a friend that you had spent nearly three years of your life with, every day of your life with for three years, and you've loved that friend and you've invested in him, and you taught him scripture, you prayed with him, you fed him, you trusted him with your finances, you cared for him, but this, you never did anything wrong to this friend, but, but this man, you find he, he despised you so much that tomorrow he's going to have you killed. And somehow you know this. So what do you do? You bring him over to your house and you feed him and you wash his feet? I mean, it's just unbelievable to me that Jesus' love, even for Judas, has no end. Again, would you do that? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't. I'm telling you, there's just no way. If I had a large basin of water, I'd put his head in it and hold it under. <laughs> but God is holy, thankfully. Thankfully, God is different for me. Jesus washes the feet of Judas, the feet that are going to walk out of that room to betray him, the feet that will lead the soldiers to Jesus, which will lead to his crucifixion. And Jesus knows this, knows this. And, and to me, this is just staggering. I mean, think about it. Is Judas ever going to change? Is he ever going to repent? Is he ever going to love God? No, he's the one that's doomed to destruction. I mean, what, what has Judas been doing up to this point in, 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 in Jesus' ministry? I mean, he's been stealing money from the group. I mean, if you steal money from Jesus, man, you, you get the corner of the Blair Witch basement in hell. I mean, this is bad stuff. That's just wrong. You can't steal money from Jesus and get away with it, can you? And, and I, I, I mean, he's been stealing money from the ministry fund for three years, and he's going to betray Jesus and have him murdered, and then he's going to kill himself and go to hell. I, I don't know about you, but Jesus had already given this man three years of love and affection. He's given him plenty of chances to repent and change, and if it were me, I would be like, you know what? You've had enough of my time. You've had enough of my love. You've had enough of my grace. Enough is enough. I'm done with you, bro. I'm done. I'm done, but not Jesus. And I was thinking, why in the world does Jesus invite Judas to a meal and feed him and then wash his feet, love him and care for him? I mean, when it's not going to make any difference, two reasons, I think, that he would do this. One, Jesus washed Judas' feet because he loved the Father. Jesus was not scrubbing Judas' feet for Judas. Now, hear me, he loved Judas, but he was not scrubbing his feet in order to get Judas to change. He wasn't scrubbing his feet, washing his feet, hoping that he would change his mind. He was scrubbing Judas' feet for the Father. He knew Judas would never appreciate what he was doing. He knew Judas would never show him any love or kindness or affection. He did not wash Judas' feet for Judas. He did it for the Father out of, the lo out of love for the Father, and that is, that's the heart of a true servant. 
Like the heart of a true servant is not, well, I'm going to serve um, because it's going to be successful, or I'm going to serve because it's going to work, or because it's going to be a good return on my investment of time and emotion and energy and money. No, a, a true servant, a true heart, servant heart is I do this because I love God, and whether anyone ever thanks me or appreciates it. That's okay, because I'm doing it for God. I'm doing this because, also because I want to put the unconditional agape love of God on display. As we like to say around here, we serve with no expectation of return. That's where this, that saying comes from, from this right here. Now, Jesus said earlier in his ministry, it's one thing to be nice to a friend, but to be exceptionally nice to an enemy, well, that's a whole other level of love and kindness. I mean, that's nothing short of godlike, Jesus says in Matthew 5, which leads us to the second reason that Jesus washed Judas' dirty feet. Jesus, Judas, excuse me, Jesus washed Judas' feet in order to show us what God is really like. Along with the other 11, Jesus even loved Judas to the end, so he washed his feet to show us what God has always been like. Here we see the servant heart of God. Um, I got the title of my message, uh, God of the Towel, from a guy, an Irish guy named Jim McQuigan. And he, his title of his devotional book is The God of the Towel. And uh, I just came back from the beach, and I can assure you that doesn't mean that the God who loves the beach. But I, uh, it's the God of the Towel. It's the servant heart of God. It's a kind of goodness that has no human counterpart, a humility and a kindness that loves when love is not returned, that loves when love is spurned, that continued to love right up to the very end. So, the application question in all of this is not just whose feet are you watching, washing, but are you washing the feet of the Judases in your life? Whew, too convicting. Let's move on. I, th I, think, I think the hard part for Judas, for me, is that I think I'm better than him. It's a myth that I, I think we all tell ourselves that Judas is a punk, he's a thug, he's a rogue, he's a thief, he's a traitor of the worst kind, and he should die and go to hell, and that should just be the end of it. He should never get his feet washed by Jesus. Why? Because he's a really bad guy, unlike me, who's a good guy who occasionally does bad things. You see, the issue is, though, Jesus has come to me. Jesus has humbled himself for me. He has died for me. He has poured out his love on me. He has served me. He has forgiven me. So, how am I different from Judas? I mean, ha have I ever taken money that belonged to God and then wasted it on myself? Guilty. Well, have I ever denied Christ or didn't speak up when I thought I should? Guilty. Have I tried to look good on the outside when my heart was bitter and angry with God on the inside? Guilty. Ha have I at certain times thought like Judas that God was wrong about how he was handling something in my life or that God didn't know what he was doing or that God wasn't to be trusted, that somehow I might be able to manipulate him or force him into doing what I think needs to be done? I ever thought that? Guilty. I think the reason Judas bothers me so much is that sometimes I'm for, far more like Judas than I am like Jesus. Jesus washes Judas' feet. He washes all their feet, and then he comes to Simon Peter. Verse 6, so he came to Simon Peter. Now, I love Peter because he's impetuous, and he's loud, and he's brash. A lot of people think Peter has a character flaw. I just think he's Irish. Or maybe Italian, I don't know. But um. So he comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, Peter is apparently skilled in recognizing the obvious. I mean, Jesus has just washed everybody else's feet, and now he's kneeling in front of Peter with a pitcher of water and a bowl and a towel, and he reaches for his feet. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Uh, yes, I am, Captain Obvious, yes. Uh, Verse 7, Jesus answered and said, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Stop. 
Now, I want to camp on this a minute because this is a profound statement in my estimation. Jesus says, Peter, right now you don't know what I'm doing, but trust me, later on, when you look back on this night, you'll think about what I've done and you'll say, ah, it all makes sense now. I get it. Which brings up a little side issue, which is we never really know what God is up to in our lives. We, may, we might think we do. I mean, he may guide us in a certain way, and we feel that we are following his leading in our lives, and we think we know where he's taking us. But we never know all of what God is up to or how he will use how he's leading us. In fact, I would say most often we would do well to hear Jesus say, you don't know what I'm doing right now, so don't try to figure it all out. Just trust me, and it'll make sense later. I could put it this way. This isn't in your sermon notes. I, I wrote this in this morning. I put this this way. When you don't understand what God is doing, trust him anyway. When you think you understand what God is doing, you probably don't. <laughs> when, you think, when you don't understand what he's doing, just trust him anyway. When you think you know what God is doing, you probably don't. We can't possibly know the big picture of all that God is doing in our lives. All we know is for sure that whatever God is doing, it's always for our highest good and his greatest glory. All we know for sure is we're supposed to love God with all our heart and mind, body, and strength and saturate ourselves with his word and follow the leading of the spirit of God in the word of God and do what he says and trust him even when we don't know where it's all going or how it's all going to work out. I know at certain points in my life, as I've, as I've looked back on something uh, that didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time, I did not know how God was working, but in hindsight, I, I could see it. And, and in, in hindsight, I'm like, God's a genius. You, I mean, you are all powerful, and you're all, you're all knowing, and you're all loving. God, God you're a genius. I, I, I couldn't figure it out, but you had it all figured out all along. God knew all along exactly what he's doing. And yeah, in hindsight, you can see the wisdom of God in it all most of the time. There are some times that I still look back, and there's still, I, I don't know exactly why God was working the way he did, but there were things I learned along the way that were important for me to learn, but I don't understand it all. But in hindsight, you recognize a lot of things, but, but you don't always recognize it on the front end. On the front end, a lot of times, you do not know what God is doing or how God is working, even though you might think you do. So, again, when you think you know what God is doing, you probably don't. When you don't know what God is doing, trust him anyway, and that's exactly what he tells Peter. Peter, just trust me here. Go with it. One day, you're going to look back on all of this, and it's all going to make sense. And Peter responds with the favorite word of every two-year-old, no. No, Lord, which doesn't make any sense, right? No, oh, ruler of me and my life and my destiny and everything. No, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Now, Peter likes to tell Jesus what to do, and I know none of you can relate to that. But Jesus says, verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, he's saying, Peter, this is not just about what I'm doing. This is about who I am. Serving is a part of my character. It's a part of my very being. It's the way I lead. It's the way that I love. And unless you can receive me like this, unless you can let me serve you, unless you can receive my grace, you cannot experience friendship with me. This isn't so much a threat as it is a fact. Peter, what you see is what you get. This is the kind of Messiah that I am. You take me like this or not at all. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not just my feet, but wash my hands and my head as well. He's still telling Jesus what to do. But he had a hard time getting there. Now, why does Peter struggle so much with Jesus washing his feet? Well, bottom line, it's pride. It's pride masquerading as false humility. It's, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, there's something in us that we, we value autonomy and self-sufficiently, like I want to stand on my own two feet even if they are dirty. I take care of myself. Now, some people have foolishly said that Christianity 
is a very easy religion. It's too simple, and therefore they reject it because you don't have to do anything except put your faith in Jesus in order to get salvation. And so it, it, it's, people say it's too easy. A by faith way of salvation is too hard for most people. It's too hard for most people. It makes Christianity the hardest of all religions. Think about it. If I were to tell you, go do these 10 things and you can know for sure that God loves you. And you go out and you do those 10 things because they're fairly easy. How do you feel about yourself? You feel pretty good. Like I was able to do those 10 things and I earned God's love and God's affection and God's favor. But if I tell you that you can never do enough good things to get God's love, that you can never do enough good things to atone for your offenses against God, and what you need to do is simply admit that. Admit that you are powerless to save yourself and your only hope is to believe that what Jesus did when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, that's your only hope. And you can only have God's forgiveness and God's love and God's life only by faith in Christ. Faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's hard to accept. That's hard to accept. I have talked to so many people over the years that came out of rule-based religious backgrounds, people who think they have to earn God's love by doing good things. And when I tell them that God will gift them his love and forgiveness by faith in Christ alone, they say that's too simple. It just can't be that easy. I've got to do something. Faith can't be enough. And it's hard for them to admit that they can't do one single thing to earn God's love. And if you were raised in a religious tradition that basically said, do good, be good, try hard, keep the commandments, and you tried all your life to live up to that, and, you've, and, and you felt as a result of try hard, do good, be good, as a result you feel like, well, I'm, no, I'm not a perfect person, but I'm not that bad. My feet aren't that dirty. If that's how you feel, then it's going to be really hard for you to let Jesus wash your feet. It's going to be really hard for you to see Jesus is enough and that Jesus alone can save you from your sin. It's hard because something inside us wants to say, but I, I got to contribute something. I mean, I, here, give me the washcloth. I'll, I'll, I'll handle my feet. Don't worry about that. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Nope. This is something that you have to let Jesus do for you. You have to take him as he is. He's saying, this is the kind of Messiah that I am. And if you reject the spirit that you're seeing with me serving you like this, so be it. If you don't want this, you don't want me because this is who I am, not just what I do. And Peter was struggling with that, as many of us do. But when he hears Jesus say, unless you let me wash your feet, you can't have a relationship with me and we can't move forward in all of this. Peter's like, okay, wash me all over. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed, and he, he had to be smiling when he said this. You know, the one who's bathed doesn't need to, to wash again. I don't need to bathe you. I don't need to wash your hands and your head and your whole body, Peter. I mean, you're completely clean. You're clean. Now, no, notice what he says here. You're clean, but not all of you. And then John adds the commentary, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Now the focus has shifted back to Judas, and this is why I made such a big deal of him early on. Now, all of a sudden, we've dropped to a deeper level of meaning. Now, in this story, there's the, what you might call the menial meaning. Jesus humbles himself to serve these men by meeting a very necessary, practical need. Uh, he, he does something nobody else wants to do. He washes their feet because that's the kind of Messiah that he is. But there's another meaning, a deeper meaning, more of a metaphorical meaning, if you will. Something, he, and the metaphorical meaning is what he meant when he said, you won't understand what I'm doing until later, until after my death and resurrection. You are clean, but not all of you. What does that mean? Jesus is using this as an opportunity to tell us what salvation is like. These men are clean. They are saved because they belong to Jesus 
because of their faith in him. He says again in John chapter 15, verse 3 of these men, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. They have believed in Jesus' word. They have put their faith and trust in him, and he has cleansed them. They are clean, but not Judas. Judas was not clean because he refused to trust in what Jesus said. Judas had a view of God. He had a view of the Messiah that wasn't true to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. He wanted, Judas wanted a God of power and might and vengeance. He wanted a Messiah who would come riding into town on a stallion, not a donkey, waving a sword, not, definitely not washing feet. He wanted a Messiah who would overthrow the Roman government and clean house not feet. And many people think that what Judas did here in betraying Jesus, he thought he could force Jesus and manipulating him into fighting back and, and setting up the kingdom. But Jesus, listen, knowing that he had the power to do all that Judas wanted him to do and more, and Jesus, knowing where he came from and where he was going, Jesus, knowing he would soon be betrayed, arrested, and crucified, he washes the feet of every man in that room. I don't know about you, but it just blows my mind. They would not understand the full metaphorical significance. They would not understand the salvation significance of all this until later, but right now they had to accept Jesus as he was. After all, if they would not accept a Messiah who washed feet, how would they ever accept a Messiah who would die for their sins? That's how all this comes together. If they would not accept a Messiah who would lower himself to wash feet, how would they accept a Messiah who would allow himself to die for their sins? You see, Jesus is not simply a God who washed feet to serve his friends. He's much more than that. He's the God who dies to save us from our sins. He washed their feet because he was the only one who would do it. He died for our sins because he's the only one who could do it. And you see, the God who stoops to serve also suffers to save. That's how all of this intersects. The God who stoops to serve suffers to save. Our dirt, our sin, our separation from God, our alienation from God, whether it's active rebellion or passive indifference, our sin problem is so pervasive, so terminal, that it cannot be fixed by us. And we need a Messiah, a Savior, who can wash us clean and keep us clean. And that's the kind of Savior Jesus is. He is all-powerful. He created the world and everything in it and holds all things together by the word of his power. He is all-knowing. He knows us inside and out. He knows our hearts. He knows when we desert him and deny him and betray him. And yet he remains all-loving. He loves us with a love that knows no end a love that stoops to serve and suffers to save. And this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God, Jesus, stands before you to wash you clean from your sin. The question is, will you let him do that for you, or will you say, no thanks, nah, my feet aren't that dirty, I'm not that bad of a person. What will you do? Bow with me for a final prayer. Listen, Jesus, knowing who you are and what you've done, Jesus, knowing that you could never, ever make things right with God by being good and doing good, Jesus, knowing you could never save yourself, he left his throne in heaven took on a human body, took the form of the lowest of the lowest slave, and he died on the cross for you. Jesus died for you to forgive your sin and wash away your guilt.
He rose from the dead to give you life, real life, with God, both now and forever. And in this moment, he kneels at your feet to serve you by saving you. <laughs> what will you do? Will you let him do for you what you cannot do for yourself? Will you trust him? Trust his word, trust his promises. This is the most simple, basic promise that he made to us, John 6, 47. Listen, I tell you the truth, everyone who believes in me has eternal life. It is that simple. So will you trust him to keep that promise to you? If so, tell him you need his cleansing. Tell him you need his forgiveness. Tell him you do believe that he's the only one who can make things right between you and God. Tell him you are trusting his promise that he will give you eternal life simply by faith. And tell him now, use your own words. Father, I, I pray for anyone who's here today, listening today, anyone listening today who have taken the step of trusting Jesus as their Savior and Lord for the very first time. I pray that you would begin this new work in their life to draw them close to yourself. I pray that you would make yourself personal in their, ex in their daily experience, that they would know that you are with them and for them. And God, I, I, I pray that we as a community of faith would be able to come alongside and nurture that newborn faith. Thank you for the picture that we see of Jesus, this how beautiful Jesus is, how wonderful he is, how powerful he is, how, how loving he is to show us the extent to which he would go to bring us back to God. And may we take this picture with us this week of this, this Jesus, this God who stoops to serve and suffers to save. May all of our lives flow out of our, 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 our obedience and our trust. May it all flow out of that picture of God, the God of the towel. And ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you told Jesus, if you told Jesus um, that you were trusting him for the first time today, then I going to ask that you would tell me. My email is cboyd at fellowshipgreenville.org. So just drop me a note and let me know that uh, you took the first step of faith, put your faith and trust in him, and um, I'll write you back and I'd love to talk with you about that. All right.